Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 94. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on November 2nd, 2022 in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Spiritual support for this episode was provided by the Cigar Vault in Buda, Texas, and my long-departed father, on whose birthday I wrote most of today's script. This episode is about a happy-go-lucky Englishman named Thomas Morton, whom William Bradford dubbed the Lord of Misrule, and who would be a thorn in the side of Puritans in New England for more than 15 years. Just to prick your interest, here's how Bradford described Thomas Morton in Of Plymouth Plantation, quote, Morton became Lord of Misrule and maintained, as it were, a school of atheism. And after they had got some goods into their hands and got much by trading with the Indians, they spent it as vainly in quaffing and drinking, both wine and strong waters in excess, and, as some reported, ten pounds worth in a morning. They also set up a maypole, drinking and dancing about it many days together, inviting the Indian women for their consorts, dancing and frisking together like so many fairies or furies and worse practices. This is a family podcast, so I'll leave it to you to explain any kids in the car what Bradford's word frisking might have meant. The maypole in question was 80 feet high and a stag's antlers adorned the top of it. Anyway, Morton would go on to write one of the most insightful and sympathetic descriptions of Indian culture and civilization in the Northeast, a book called New English Canaan, which is also interlaced with caustic attacks on Bradford and other Puritans. Nathaniel Hawthorne would write a story about the Maypole at Marymount, Morton's settlement, and William Carlos Williams would feature him in his 1925 book, In the American Grain, which was incidentally recommended to me on the streets of New York by Nick Gillespie, former editor of Reason Magazine and friend of this podcast. Anti-Puritan historians would see Morton as an early harbinger of the libertarian and, it must be said, libertine resistance to our long-standing puritanical sensibilities. He was, at a minimum, the guy whom I, and I dare say most of you, would prefer to hang out with if we were suddenly transported into New England of the 1620s for a long weekend. We'll get to all of that after setting the table a bit. Sorry, history is complicated. We are backing and filling our way through the 1620s in North America. The Second Anglo-Powhatan War, known on this podcast as Opa-Kankanaw's War, will occupy the English colonies in Virginia, by far the largest concentration, until the 1630s, of English in the lands that would become the United States. In this timeline, the Dutch have arrived, and in the summer of 1626, Peter Minwee would buy, you can't see my scare quotes, the island of Manhattan from the Lenin-Nyape Indians and established the town of New Amsterdam, which would eventually become New York City. 
we will get back to both the Virginians and the Dutch, but first we have to swing up the coast to Massachusetts for a bit. The famous pilgrims, Puritan separatists, landed at Plymouth, formerly Pertuxet, in late 1620, and we have followed them into 1624, when bold action by the pilgrim leaders, including particularly Miles Standish, cemented their relationship with a Wampanoag sachem Massasoit and pushed the Massachusetts tribe back on its heels, greatly enhancing the security of the pilgrims. We covered that story a few weeks back in the Pilgrim's Play for Keeps. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that one of the original investors in the Pilgrim's Project, one Thomas Weston, had founded a competing colony in Wessagusset. He had sent fairly rough-and-tumble men under poor leadership. The Weston settlers had run out of food, and in their desperation had provoked the nearby Massachusetts into plotting with other tribes in the area to push out all the English, including those at Plymouth. Or at least, that's what the Pilgrims believed. At Massasoit's urging, the Pilgrims attacked preemptively, dispatching Standish and a few soldiers to strike first— it worked. The result was the dispersion of the Wessagusset settlers and the deference of the tribes of the region to both the pilgrims and Massasoit. As a result, by the summer of 1624, when William Bradford would marry a second time, the pilgrims were more secure, militarily at least, than they'd been at any point since they'd landed at Patuxet in 1620. This was important in and of itself, and also because the Wessagusset experienced influenced how they would react to similar threats. Two other themes influence our understanding of the story of Thomas Morton. The first is the confessional struggle in England between Puritans and mainstream Anglicans. Warning, gross generalizations follow, so you will all have your quibbles. The Puritans were rising in power and influence, and the old-school Anglicans were struggling to contain that influence. Eventually, that struggle would lead to civil war, but not for another couple of decades. In the meantime, it's enough to notice that part of the struggle was social and cultural. The people who followed the traditional church were fun-loving, normie descendants of merry old England, as it were. The Puritans were basically fun-suckers, Whatever their other strengths, which were manifest, like industriousness, early ideas about self-government, that sort of thing. Anyway, that struggle would spill into North America in various ways, most imminently with the arrival of a huge wave of Puritan immigration to New England starting in 1628. Between 1628 and 1642, 21,000 Puritans would arrive in New England, the flow only ending with a rise of the Puritans to political power in England itself. Of course, we'll get to all of that in due course. For now, it's mere context for today's story. The second theme involves the changing economic fortunes of the pilgrims. This is a complicated subject too, but the basic elements are these. In the mid-1620s, with Thomas Weston out of the way, the pilgrims bought out their original investors for a note to be paid in annual installments. The repayment of that note would rely on the fur trade, which had become very profitable. To gain an edge in that trade, the pilgrims set up a port on Buzzards Bay south of Cape Cod so they could gain easy access to the mouth of the Connecticut River. 
that would put them in some conflict with the Dutch. In 1625, they dispatched Edward Winslow to establish a fur trading post up the Kennebec River in Maine. He returned with hundreds of furs and the promise of more. Successful competition in the fur game was now critical to the financial success of the Plymouth Colony, and especially Bradford, Winslow, Standish, and several of the other leaders, including the accomplished and fertile John Howland, the erstwhile indentured servant who almost drowned on the Mayflower Crossing, who had in effect signed personal guarantees for the note given to the investors. We don't know a great deal about Thomas Morton's past. He may have grown up in the West Country, Devon, the land that gave birth to such great entrepreneurs of overseas expansion as Sir Ferdinando Gorges, who had become the leading exponent of settlement in New England, and, wait for it, Sir Francis Drake. As a young man, however, we find Morton in London. In 2007, Professor of English William Heath published Thomas Morton, From Merry Old England to New England, in the Journal of American Studies, which is one of the principal sources for this episode. Here's how Heath summarized the Puritan denunciations of Morton, which are as good a place to start as any. Quote, Thomas Dudley termed Morton a proud, insolent man. To Edward Winslow, he was an arrant knave and a serpent in the New England garden. For Governor William Bradford, he was a man of more craft than honesty, who'd been kind of a pettifogger and an instrument of mischief. Puritan apologists Edward Johnson and Cotton Mather labeled him a malignant adversary and a malicious calumniator. Charles Francis Adams, his first biographer, judged him in his final years a broken-down, disreputable sot, an interpretation that many historians have followed. In New English Canaan, 1637, the author referred to himself as Thomas Morton of Clifford's Inn, gentleman, mine host, and the son of a soldier. And in more recent times, he has had a share of defenders. An aristocrat by birth and a bon vivant by inclination, Morton was educated for the law at the inns of court. He was fond of falconry and coppery, body puns, and esoteric poetry. In London, he may well have devoted his time to finding patrons to further his ambitions and imbibing with Ben Jonson's roisterous tribe at the Mermaid Tavern. He was, in some, an Elizabethan dandy, a man of the Renaissance, with a smattering of high culture and a hankering for low adventure. Back to me. Ben Jonson was the second greatest English playwright of the day and legendarily held court at the Mermaid Tavern, where he robustly conversed with William Shakespeare and other literati into the night. Morton, a poet of modest accomplishment in his own right, probably would have been there too. Morton had indeed been educated in the law at Clifford's Inn, one of London's famous inns of court. Back to Heath, quote, Young Thomas would have memorized passages from Cicero, Caesar, Ovid, Levy, Virgil, Catullus, Terence, and Plotus, studied their tropes and schemes until he could imitate their styles, 
and mastered the art of disputation, or controversy, so that he could take any side of an argument with equal felicity. I'm going to interject here and say that that is a lost art, if ever there was one. Back to Heath. The inns of court were more than a place to study law, part finishing school for gentlemen of leisure, part proving ground for men on the make, and part den of iniquity for madcaps and malcontents. The inns were at the very center of London's social life and culture. Back to me, Morton would never make much of a lawyer, but he learned enough to marry a wealthy widow around 1621. Unfortunately, the widow's son was, justifiably, worried that Morton would spend his inheritance. So he arranged for his mother to give him a free lease on the family lands, effectively depriving Morton of access to his new bride's income. Litigation and ugliness ensued, and before long, the widow widowed Morton. Now free of family obligations and, sadly for Morton, money, he fell into company with Sir Ferdinando Gorgias. We do not know precisely how they connected. English elites amounted to a fairly small world, even in the 1620s. But by March 1624, Morton was on his way to New England on a ship called Unity. Under the command of Captain Richard Wollaston and another adventurer, Humphrey Rastall. In New England by the summer, they established a colony at the site of today's Quincy, Massachusetts, which they named Mount Wollaston. Mount Wollaston was only a few miles from the site of the old Weston settlement at Wessagusset, and, curiously enough, on land eventually owned by John Adams. That historical accident led to correspondence about Morton between Adams and his pen pal Thomas Jefferson almost 200 years later. Indeed, Adams would own one of two surviving North American copies of Morton's book. Four generations of the Adams family would read Morton's book. And in 1883, Charles Francis Adams Jr., the second president's great-grandson, if I counted generations right, would publish a scholarly edition of New English Canaan. At any rate, Wollaston and Rastall had brought 30 or more indentured servants to New England, and their plan was to use Mount Wollaston as a base and sell the indentures, meaning the labor of these unfortunate people, to the settlers in Virginia who were struggling to rebuild after Opakankana's attack two years before. These servants were a sad lot, in such tough circumstances that Bradford referred to them as slaves. Maybe they were, even if not in the same sense as enslaved people of later years. Here's how John Turner, in his book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, described them, quote, Little is known about the servants whom Wollaston and Rastall had brought to the New World, but Bradford employed the term slaves for good reason. In a London teeming with starving migrants from the countryside, constables periodically seized poor children and confined them in Bridewell Prison. In 1619, several hundred of these children were indentured to Virginia Company investors who transported them to colonial tobacco fields. Many well-to-do men in England praised such schemes. John Dunn, the poet-turned-dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, 
told the investors of the Virginia company that colonization would sweep your streets and wash your doors from idle persons and the children of idle persons. The human cost of this cleansing was high. By 1622, nearly all of the 300 servants shipped to the Chesapeake had died. One succumbed after her master punished her with a reported 500 blows. Over the course of the century, English authorities shipped thousands of Irish rebels, religious dissidents, criminals, and vagrants to North American and Caribbean colonies. Many of them went as servants for life. Perhaps their children would be free, but in every other respect, they were slaves. Back to me. Humphrey Ralstall took a smaller boat to Virginia to investigate the market for indentures and then sent word for Wollaston to come down with some of the servants, leaving the rest in the care of one Lieutenant Fitcher. Once Wollaston was over the horizon, Morton organized a mutiny. According to Bradford, at least, he gave the remaining servants strong drink and then warned them that they would also be carried away and sold for slaves. The solution was to banish Fitcher, at which point they would be free from service and could all live together as equals. Fitcher, being nobody's fool, got out of Dodge, as it were. Morton renamed the outpost Marymount. Spellings differ in the record, but the point was unmistakable. And the games would begin. As irritated as Bradford and the Pilgrims were over the Maypole, which was basically a medieval excuse for a party, and the frisking and quaffing and whatnot, and there's no reason to doubt that they were not genuinely upset by all that stuff, they had two other concerns, and they were related. The overt and perhaps gravest concern was that Morton would destabilize their carefully wrought settlement with the local tribes. Behind that was the worry that Morton was competing with them in the fur trade, and successfully enough that they would not be able to repay their note to the original investors. These were related, because the Pilgrims believed that Morton was so successful in his trading with the Indians because he was selling them firearms and ammunition. Here's how Bradford leveled the charge, quote, Now to maintain this riotous prodigality and profuse excess... Morton, thinking himself lawless, and hearing what gain the French and fishermen made by trading of pieces, meaning guns, powder and shot to the Indians, he, as the head of this consortship, began the practice of same in these parts. And first he taught them how to use them, to charge and discharge, and what proportion of powder to give each piece, according to the size or bigness of the same and what shot to use for fowl and what for deer. And having thus instructed them, he employed some of them to hunt and fowl for him. So as they became far more active in that employment than any of the English, by reason of their swiftness of foot and nimbleness of body, being also quick-sighted and by continual exercise, well knowing the haunts of all sorts of game." So as when they saw the execution that a piece would do and the benefit that might come by the same, they became mad, as it were, after them. It would not stick to give any price they could attain for them, accounting their bows and arrows but baubles in comparison of them. And here I may take occasion to bewail the mischief that this wicked man began in these parts 
and which since base covetousness prevailing in men that should know better has not at length got the upper hand and made this thing common, notwithstanding any laws to the contrary. So as the Indians are fully of pieces all over, both fowling pieces, muskets, pistols, etc., they have also their molds to make shot of all sorts as musket bullets, pistol bullets, swan and goose shot, and of small sorts. Yea, some have seen them have their screw plates to make screw pins instead when they want them with sundry other implements, wherewith they are ordinarily better fitted and furnished than the English themselves. This Morton, having thus taught them the use of pieces, he sold them all he could spare, and he and his consorts determined to send for many out of England and had by some of the ships sent for above a score. The which being known, and his neighbors meeting the Indians in the woods armed with guns in this sort, it was a terror unto them who lived stragglingly and were of no strength in any place. Back to me, who were these English who lived stragglingly? Well, during the mid-1620s, very small micro-settlements had sprung up in the greater Boston area. Some of these were remnants of the Wessagusset colony, who had scattered on their own and built cabins in the woods rather than head back to England. But there were others who had come over in small groups and set up what they called plantations, meaning small family farms. They were essentially defenseless, and Bradford was either actually worried about them or professing concern because of his broader agenda. He was also worried about the pilgrims. Bradford knew full well that armed Indians might begin to assert themselves or even attack by surprise. After all, only a few years had passed since Opakankana's attack on the settlements along the James River, and their concern was legit. The pilgrims were diligent and carried guns even to church services years after they'd established their lasting peace with the Wampanoag. Bradford then describes how sundry of the chief of the straggling plantations petitioned the pilgrims for help in containing Morton and reported which of them contributed money to the pilgrims to defray some of the cost of the operation. The pilgrims first resorted to reason by writing to Morton in, quote, a friendly and neighborly way to admonish him to forbear these courses and sent a messenger with their letters to bring his answer. But Morton scorned all advice, declared he would continue to trade pieces with the Indians and rejected the pilgrims' entreaty with, quote, many other scurrilous terms full of disdain. Family podcast, explain it to the kids, etc., etc., the, quote, neighborly request having been rejected, the Pilgrim Fathers figured to duplicate their success at Wessagusset and deal with Morton and his frisking buddies by force. In June 1628, they dispatched Miles Standish, who else, and a few men. Morton was ready, sort of, insofar as Bradford reports, they found him to stand stiffly in his defense, having made fast his doors, armed his consorts, set diverse dishes of powder and bullets ready on the table. But men of Marymount had also made merry and were hammered, in Bradford's awesome phrase, overarmed with drink. The defenders were so drunk that they could barely lift their weapons. 
Standish secured Marymount without having to fire a shot, the only casualty being so crocked that he jabbed the point of his sword into his own nose, losing but a little of his hot blood. In any case, Standish arrested Morton and took him back to Plymouth, whereupon he was confined to the Isle of Shoals off the Hampshire coast, according to Morton, without so much as a knife to procure food. Morton himself was not beyond exaggerating his own misery to make a point. In his book, written some years later, he claimed that Bradford had dropped him off there in the winter, when in fact it had been the dead of summer. Morton's own caustic account of the episode reads quite differently from Bradford's and others, and he really couldn't abide Captain Standish, whom he referred to as Captain Shrimp in New English Canaan. Anyway, local Indians provided food for him. In the fall of 1628, he was picked up by a Plymouth fishing boat bound for England. The boat included a fellow named John Oldham, whose murder a few years hence would trigger the savage Pequot War, to which we will get when my muse so dictates. Oldham carried letters from Bradford to Sir Ferdinando Gorges detailing Morton's sins and advocating that he be prosecuted. Gorges, however, was all for merry old England, and absolutely not on the side of the Puritans, which Bradford might not have entirely understood. Morton walked once he got to England. He would return to New England in 1629. By this time, the advance wave of the Puritan Great Migration to Massachusetts Bay had begun. Now let's go to William Heath for the sad end of Morton's Maypole. Quote, On September 6th, 1628, while Morton was on the Isle of Shoals, John Endicott, a narrow, rigid, and choleric Puritan, known to his admirers as strong, valiant John, arrived in Nokiag, Salem, with a vanguard of what would in two years become the Great Migration. Although he had no legal jurisdiction to do so, at some point he went to Marymount, caused that maypole to be cut down and rebuked the remnant of Morton's men for their profaneness and admonished them. The place was renamed Mount Dagon, after the god to whom the Philistines made sacrifices, just before Samson, in the midst of their sport, and when their hearts were merry, pulled the pillars of their temple down, slaying himself and many of his enemies. No one died when Endicott cut down Morton's maypole, and contrary to Hawthorne's story, apparently no one was compelled to leave or convert to Puritanism. Endicott, as we will no doubt see at some point, was one of the least fun people ever to move to vast early America, and that is saying something. Morton's love of New England and its native peoples, this part is clearly genuine, brought him back in 1629. He actually came to Plymouth and apparently worked for a while as Isaac Allerton's scribe until he wore out his welcome again. No doubt Bradford was not delighted to see Morton, but he did tolerate his presence in the settlement after their encounter the year before. Whatever Bradford's various flaws, there's no doubt that he had a genuine capacity to forgive, or at least give second chances, as he demonstrated again and again in his dealings with the local Indians. After some time, but before the end of 1629, Morton went back up to his old haunt near the Massachusetts people, 
rejoining the happy band of merrymounters who remained in the area, still no doubt smarting from Endicott's heavy-handed intervention. Now back to Heath, quote, Soon Morton was up to his old tricks, employing his Indian friends to hunt for him and beating his competitors to the best furs at the Kennebec in Maine. His renewed success in the fur trade brought him into conflict with Endicott, whom he referred to as Captain Littleworth, who, envious of his prosperity, tried to draw him into a trading partnership. Morton suspected this offer would prove a mousetrap and refused on the grounds that he would do nothing contrary or repugnant to the laws of the Kingdom of England. Meanwhile, as winter approached, the food situation in Salem became so desperate that indentured servants were set free to fend for themselves. Peeved at Morton's rejection of his offer and covetous of his provisions, Endicott lit a raid on Marymount, quoting Morton now, after they had feasted their bodies with what they found there, they carried all his corn away with some other of his goods, contrary to the laws of hospitality. A small parcel of refuse corn only accepted, which they left mine host to keep Christmas with. Close quote. Undaunted, the self-reliant Morton cashed the rest of his supplies in the woods and used his hunting rifle to good effect and feasted his body with fowl and venison. He probably could have survived quite well in this way for some time, but in the summer of 1630, some 200 Puritans arrived at Massachusetts Bay with several thousand more to follow, permanently shifting the balance of power and making Morton a marked man. One of Governor Winthrop's first official acts was to call for Morton's apprehension. Back to me. Winthrop had Morton arrested and tried on the charge of stealing a canoe from the Indians, probably trumped up, insofar as Morton had maintained good relations with the Indians in part because he just liked them. And the Puritan Court of Assistance convicted him in August 1630. The court ordered that he be imprisoned and sent to England, that all his possessions should be seized to pay for the cost of transportation, and that his house be burned to the ground in the sight of the Indians, quote, for their satisfaction, for many wrongs he hath done them from time to time. Morton would be the first Englishman banished by the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay Colony, but far from the last. In the next decade, they would eject the famous religious dissident Roger Williams, who had found the colony of Rhode Island, and Anne Hutchinson, both of whom will no doubt feature prominently in future episodes. Once again, the anti-Puritan gorges dismissed the charges against Morton, who then got to work on his book, perhaps, as Heath speculates, at the urging of Gorgias, who would have been interested in discrediting Winthrop and his project both because he didn't much like Puritans and because the ongoing Great Migration was screwing up Gorgias' own ambitions for the area. Bradford would eventually describe New English Canaan as, quote, an infamous and scurrilous book against many godly and chief men of the country— full of lies and slanders and fraught with profane calumnies against their names and persons and the ways of God. 
Bradford had reason to hate the book, which, in addition to his sympathetic and almost romantic description of Indian society and culture, amounted to a broadside and mocking attack on Plymouth and its leaders. Not only did Morton describe Standish's raid in 1628 from an entirely different perspective, but he challenged the Pilgrim narrative of the Wessagusset incident in 1624. According to Morton, there'd been no widespread conspiracy against the Pilgrims to justify Standish's attack on the Massachusetts. But the Pilgrims had not merely been misled by Massasoit. They'd manufactured the story entirely. Morton's screed remains the most searing counter-narrative of the Pilgrim story and has been amplified in modern times by historians who want to take the Pilgrim Fathers down a few pegs in the national memory. Heath, professor of English, recounts the challenged publication of the book and its legacy, quote, Although Charles Green, a printer, had registered New English Canaan in 1633, Morton's book was not published until 1637, apparently from a press in Holland. Morton, no doubt, had worked on his book for several years, pouring his rancor into a vitriolic account of the cruel schismatics at Boston Bay. New English Canaan mocks Captains Shrimp and Littleworth, Standish and Endicott, scorns the self-righteousness of the purer-than-thou saints, and celebrates the merry exploits of mine host of Marymount. But the chief merit of the book is... Samuel Maverick first perceived in 1659 is that it provides, quote, the truest description of New England as then it was that I ever saw. Unlike the Puritans, Morton was at home with the Indians, and his firsthand observations were filled with wonder at the naturalistic beauty of the New World, delighting in naming its species. He wanted to know the land itself, the trees and flowers, the rocks and streams, the fish, birds, and animals, and above all, the native peoples. Remarkably for his time, he recorded with some accuracy where he was and what was there. Although it was the work of a dabbler and dilettante, marred by slapdash composition, convoluted argumentation, and a plethora of classical allusions, as natural history, anthropology, comic romp, pastoral interlude, an expose of hypocritical bigotry, New English Canaan is a step in the right direction. Even modern scholars unsympathetic to Morton find his book a breath of fresh air. He has a claim to being the first American poet, our first dramatist, in the sense that what was enacted around the Maypole was a kind of Elizabethan mask. Our first mixed-genre experimental writer and our first satirist. Unfortunately, with the exception of Maverick, Morton's only 17th-century readers appear to have been the subjects of his satire. Back to me. The Puritans rising in power in England were quite understandably threatened by Morton's book. That may explain, among other things, why it was registered for publication in England but eventually printed in Holland. The suppression worked. Original copies are incredibly rare, and only two made it to the New World, one purchased in Paris as part of a bundle of books sent to John Adams 150 years later. Thirteen years after his banishment by Winthrop, Morton, now approaching his 70s, 
would return to New England in the summer of 1643. He went to Plymouth, once again benefiting from William Bradford's capacity to forgive. Though fully aware of Morton's book, Bradford gave him permission to stay in Plymouth through the winter of 43-44, as long as he agreed to leave when spring arrived. Others weren't so forgiving. According to John Adams, writing two lifespans later, Morton aroused the fierce wrath of Miles Standish for wandering the countryside with his gun, shooting birds over the marshes. There's reason to believe that Morton was, among his other accomplishments, one of the most effective European hunters in early America. Certainly, there'd been nobody at Jamestown or in the early Spanish settlements with Morton's capacity to find and kill game to eat. Endicott and Winthrop heard that Morton was back, and they were no more forgiving than Standish. When Morton left Plymouth to return to his old lands, now occupied by Puritans, the Bay colonists again arrested and tried him, the main charge apparently being the book he'd written against them. Rather than banishing him a third time, that had backfired twice, they tossed him in jail for a year, apparently without fire or bedding and only a little food. Morton, now rapidly aging in the arduous conditions, petitioned the Puritan court for relief. Winthrop recorded that he was fined a hundred pounds and set at liberty. He was a charge to the country, for he had nothing, and we thought not fit to inflict corporal punishment on him, being old and crazy. Crazy in this context referred to bodily infirmities, not mental pathology. The court banished him to Agamenicus, now York, Maine, where there was a small colony of Anglican royalists. Now back to Heath, quote, In 1647, he died at Agamenicus, poor and despised in Winthrop's estimation. But Maverick's more sympathetic account of this gentleman of good quality suggests that he spent his last years among friends. Morton knew that his offense was that he had touched the Puritans too near, and he knew he was dying, having, as he said and most believed, received his bane by hard lodging and fare in prison. Thus was this man of wanton summers broken at last by adamant Puritans and rough winter weather. Back to me. It's perhaps difficult for Americans today not to look at Thomas Morton romantically, as William Carlos Williams would do in his book in The American Grain. He was a rogue, the first of many in the great American tradition. He was the first notorious dissident in Puritan New England, a society that would produce many such people. Some would be freedom-loving party animals who chafed under the strictures of the Puritan theocracy, and others were deeply religious men and women who objected to the Puritans philosophically. Morton was a fearsome economic opportunist, disrupting the fur trade and vexing the pilgrims of Plymouth and Winthrop's Puritans who depended on it in their early years particularly. And it should be said that Morton was not the most scrupulous person he went to New England in the first place after having blown up his marriage to the wealthy widow Miller in an ugly fight with her son. Many of us, certainly me, would prefer to spend our time machine weekend in New England with Morton. However, we shouldn't ignore the big picture. 
Martin was an Anglican and a royalist, and in that regard stood opposed to the forces that would ultimately transform colonial America into a land of liberty unprecedented in the English or European experience. Michael Zuckerman, writing in 1977, captures the contradiction well, quote, Thomas Morton was a man whose like New England would not soon see again. And in this, as in so much else, New England was aberrant among American settlements. Men such as Morton were far more evident in other colonies. Yet in spite of all that, and in spite even of their denials of their disposition to be free, the Pilgrims and Puritans were agents of a freedom more radical in certain respects than any that Morton represented. They were agents of an unprecedented liberation from tradition. We'll end today's episode here and explore the unprecedented liberation from tradition in some future episode. Regardless, Thomas Morton's story is one of the great tales of early English America, and there's enough in it for several episodes. I didn't quote it today, but for background, I read a good bit of Peter Mankell's book, The Trials of Thomas Morton, an Anglican lawyer, his Puritan foes, and the battle for New England, published in 2019. If you decide to check it out, there's a link in the show notes on the website. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.